Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Sturza about his recently published book, The London Revolution, 1640 to 1643, Class Struggles in 17th Century England. This book examines the political upheavals that occurred during the reign of Charles I in London and England more broadly. Michael offers an analysis that is thoughtfully written and sensitive to the class divisions at the heart of the struggle. Michael, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, before jumping into the book, uh, I just was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Uh, I'm a native New Yorker. I came of age during the 1960s, the era of civil rights in the Vietnam War, and began my political career in high school as an anti-war activist. I went to many of the mass protest marches that were regular occurrences then, And in college, I began to understand that the US government's war on the Black Panthers at home and the Vietnamese abroad were not unrelated. Eventually, I was one to the Marxist understanding that social oppression and imperialist war are endemic to the capitalist system of production for profit. Over the years, I've been active around these and many other issues of importance to the international workers movement. In 2005, my union local passed my motion demanding freedom for Black journalist Mumia Abu-Jamal, then on death row, and abolition of the racist death penalty. Jamal is a former Black Panther uh, who was framed for his political views and unjustly remains in prison to this day. And to just get into a little bit about the book, you know, uh, obviously in that intro, uh, I would say that, you know, you're, you're... Political work, uh, not entirely different than the contents of this book. Uh, this book, of course, is about seventeenth uh, century England. So, how did you come to write a book about about this topic? Well, I wrote this book to refute the right wing revisionist historians who are trying to write revolution out of history. By the early nineteen eighties, the revisionist account had largely displaced the Marxist class analysis. This was the period of Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, and deindustrialization when the ruling capitalist classes in both the US and Britain brought about a sharp political wrench to conservatism through their vicious program of strike breaking and union busting. To achieve my aim required explaining what made the English events a revolution. The central issue in 17th century England was the contradiction between the feudal political system and the capitalist economy which caused tensions and distortions in the rigid feudal hierarchy. There were two social classes that engaged in the struggle against monarchical absolutism. One was the landowning gentry, which dominated the House of Commons. They were not opposed to monarchy in principle. They were moderates who wanted to reform the existing feudal system in their favor by bringing the monarchy and state church under their own control. For this reason, they supported democratic rights of property and the individual. By themselves, however, they were unable to bring about political change. 
The other was the militant movement of radically Puritan middling people, as they were called, the large urban petty bourgeois class composed of artisan craft workers, small shopkeepers, early manufacturers, domestic traders, and mariners. Many lower class workers, such as laborers, also fo often followed them. Their demand for the abolition of the established state church, the major prop of the monarchy, was a revolutionary political program incompatible with feudal social relations. The immediate precipitate for, precipitate for the resolution in January 1642 was the king's attempt to arrest five members of parliament on the floor of the House of Commons for treason. It was the occupation in the streets of London by tens of thousands of armed middling citizens in defense of parliament that brought down the king. Uh, before uh, moving into discussing the specifics of the London Revolution, uh, I was wondering if you could give a little bit of a background on the history of England prior to 1500. Obviously, you don't need to, to cover every single uh, monarch who reigned and, and every uh, last <laughs> detail, but but you do highlight a few uh, a, a few events that you think are, are crucial to understand uh, what, what goes on. Yes. Um, so to begin with, we need to understand what made England different from countries on the continent. As an island, it was largely insulated from foreign attack, eliminating the need for a powerful central government. As a result, absolutism never fully took hold in England, unlike in Spain and France. The Barons' Rebellion in 1215 produced Magna Carta, which originally contained a security clause that eventually developed into a parliament of landowners with limited but real powers, and this attenuated the monarchy. The landowners used their power in the state to prevent the monarchy from building a standing army or a central bureaucracy. And this was the pivotal weakness of the English monarchy, which made it dependent on local aristocrats to enforce its laws. The second major event was the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. This was an enormous uprising covering most of Southeast England, although it lasted a much shorter time than the later peasant war in early 15th century Germany at the time of Luther. It was just as significant. The revolt led to early, the early dying out of villainage or serfdom in the late 14th and early 15th centuries. English peasants were freed from the land under, under an arrangement called copyhold, which, which replaced feudal obligation with a bourgeois payment of money rent, in essence, a capitalist contract. The peasants could now leave the land if they so chose. They could sell any surplus they were able to produce. Uh, their labor service to the Lord was abolished. They were given a written title to the land, and their descendants could inherit the farm upon payment of a large fine or fee. By custom, rents were low. It did not make them freemen or landholders, but it was a qualitative advance in their relationship to the noble and gentry landowners. And it opened the way <clears throat> for the spread of market relations in the countryside during the 15th and 16th centuries. The absence of any large-scale warfare on English soil from 1485 to 1640 gave the economy time to develop and capital to accumulate. Especially under Elizabeth in the second half of the 16th century, there was a large increase in production and overseas trade. And by 1600, 
England was an economically capitalist country, despite the large majority of the population still engaged in agriculture. But growth of, capital, of the capitalist economy caused political and religious conflicts. The gentry still had an antagonistic relationship to their copyhold tenants. There was a steady inflation during the 16th and early 17th centuries, which affected the living standards of gentry, whose tenants paid low rents with long leases. Many therefore sought to improve their estates at copyholders' expense, raising rents, shortening leases, and throwing peasants off the land by enclosing them for greater productivity. Large numbers of peasants were forced to migrate to towns, especially London, where they became pools of desperately poor, casual labor. Many middle gentry also invested in trade or manufacture and were willing to take an active managerial role in capitalist projects. As a result, their interests aligned with those of bourgeois merchants, tradesmen, and early manufacturers to a great extent. A large section of the gentry was therefore in a contradictory position with a foot in each of two different social systems, feudalism and capitalism, which made them politically moderate. In addition to the, uh, the economic landscape that you describe, and I think that that's, that was a, a really great summary uh, of it, um, and definitely will, will help to make sense of what you then later describe in the book. I was wondering if you could talk about the religious landscape and the rise of the Puritans. Sure. Puritanism originated in the Church of England in the mid-16th century. The English Reformation, begun under Henry VIII, was, under Elizabeth, still a largely conservative compromise between Catholic ostentation, superstition, and hierarchy, and Protestant simplicity, rationality, and individualism. Puritans were, at bottom, consistent Protestants who wanted to eliminate all traces of Catholicism from the church. It was a trans-class movement. Many gentry and even a few nobles were Puritan or Puritan sympathizers. And by Elizabeth's death in 1603, it had come to have a general effect throughout English society. But it was most popular and took the most radical forms among the middling class in London due to their social position. The middling people were a large urban petty bourgeois stratum, as I explained earlier, uh, in the 16th and early 17th centuries. A master craftsman typically had a modest workshop adjacent to his home with one or two apprentices who lived in his house and or, and or hired journeymen who worked for wages. They sold their output either to customers directly or to shop owners. Their business practices were governed by the city's guilds called livery companies, of which they were members. And many of the middling liverymen were respectable employers and made very good livings. The most successful were also moneylenders. But the bulk of the small producers depended on selling their wares weekly in order to live. And it was they or their sons, apprentices and employees, who provided the horsepower of the revolution and not the politically moderate, more conservative gentry landowners, who themselves were part of the feudal ruling class. The middling people, as I said, were mainly Puritan uh, and most radically so. Are, the, are these people the, uh, the same or related to the group that you refer to as the Atlantic merchants? Good question. Uh, no. Uh, the Atlantic merchants were a very new group. So let me just explain that the highest echelons of the capitalist class 
were divided by their economic practices and history. For many decades, going all the way back to the 15th century, uh, royally chartered trading companies, such as the Merchant Adventurers and East India Company, completely monopolized foreign trade. These bourgeois merchant princes, as they were sometimes called, also regulated domestic production, especially of textiles. And they were therefore heavily tied into the feudal system. They supported the monarchy with customs duties, loans, and gifts. They served as bankers to the aristocracy. And they were the oligarchic rulers of towns, especially London. But in the late 1620s and 30s, a new class of Atlantic merchants became almost as wealthy under the rough and ready conditions of free trade in tobacco and provisions with Virginia. Unlike the monopoly company merchants, they were not beholden to the king for their wealth. Most were radically Puritan in politics and religion, known as independents. In the 1630s, they allied with Puritan aristocrats to found new colonies for Puritan refugees, such as Massachusetts Bay. They aggressively attacked Spanish interests in the Caribbean and interloped on the old monopoly company trading areas. And along with Puritan preachers, they became leaders of the Puritan movement in London due to their extensive commercial ties with middling class producers and retailers. They backed parliament with money and administrative expertise, and they pushed for active prosecution of the war against the king. They were, in short, the bourgeois vanguard of the English Revolution. During this period of time, uh, Charles I was in power. Can you describe this uh, this man and what his objectives were? Yes, the early Stuart kings, James I and Charles I, attempted to resolve the social contradiction between the capitalist economy and the feudal political system by increasing the absolute power of the monarchy. Beginning in 1629, Charles refused to call another par a parliament for 11 years and attempted to reinforce all aspects of the feudal social system. In particular, he promoted conservatives in the state church of England, known as Arminians, who upheld church ritual and hierarchy and the divine right of kings and opposed preaching. Puritans were persecuted, driven out of the church, and sometimes out of England to Holland or America. Puritan writings were proscribed and secret meetings of religious dissidents were illegal and they were subject to arrest. At the same time, many clergy were appointed to government posts and Catholics to offices at the royal court. In 1637, Charles received the first Vatican representative in nearly 80 years. There, there was thus an acute sense of Protestant, Protestantism under siege in England which made both gentry and middling people die-hard opponents of Arminians, thus enabling their early unity. The participation of gentry in the capitalist economy brought them into conflict with the king over taxation, personal liberty, and property rights. Taxation was a major issue because the gentry MPs insisted on their traditional power to control it. If the landowners could be taxed without their consent, what was the point to having a parliament? In a capitalist money economy, taxation is crucial. Without it, armies cannot be paid, and control of armed forces means control of state power. 
But during the 11 year personal rule, Charles repeatedly attempted to impose taxes on his own authority. In 1637, Star Chamber convicted three Puritan preachers of sedition. They were sentenced to having their ears cut off, cheeks branded, and imprisonment for life. MPs were shocked at this treatment of a physician, a clergyman, and a lawyer, members of the learned professions. The prerogative court of Star Chamber also had the power to interfere with decisions in the common courts. This meant that no one could be sure that commercial rulings on matters of business, such as contracts, wills, lawsuits, etc., would not be summarily overturned by the government. Many of the gentry's personal and property interests, therefore, largely aligned with those of bourgeois free trade merchants, tradesmen, and manufacturers. And in the same year, 1637, Charles attempted to impose the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer on Presbyterian Scotland. This led to a war between Scotland and England that the king could not financially afford, and his motley army was defeated by the Scots. Opposition to the war in England came from all social classes, but especially the Puritan middling people who sympathized with the Scots Presbyterians. Unable to secure new loans for the war and having lost the confidence of a section of the nobility as well as the gentry, Charles was forced to call a new parliament in 1640 for the first time in 11 years. This uh, this parliament, which is referred to as the Long Parliament, took seats on November 3rd, 1640. Uh, can you describe some of the people that were the, the members of parliament at this time, who they were, what they believed, and what the general composition of the parliament was like? Uh, well, it was overwhelmingly gent gentry, gentlemen who were landowners in the country, um, junior, the House of Commons as the lower house, uh, was the, uh, they were the junior members of the ruling class. Um, the, um, the, some of them, there were some merchants, but not very many. Um, a number of them were, were lawyers in the common courts, but that wasn't unusual. Uh, many common lawyers came from gentry backgrounds. Um, they were led by a man uh, named John Pym, who had served in earlier parliaments. He was the leader of the opposition to the king. But the House of Commons uh, political program, uh, the gentry sought to reform the political, the feudal political system. They, they were simply, they were moderates. They wanted to impose limits on the power of the king and bishops. They had no ideas about overthrowing the monarchy or abolishing the church. But most of them were opposed to the Catholicizing innovations introduced there by Charles and the Arminians. What the gentlemen MPs opposed were the early Stuart King's attempts to implement absolute power, because these interfered with their ability to engage in profitable capitalist enterprises in trade and manufacture or to make improvements to their estates. However, without the backing of the more conservative House of Lords, which included the bishops as lords of the church, they were not able to overcome the king. On the other hand, in 1640, the commons was soon met with the revolutionary demands of the London middling class movement for abolition of episcopacy, that is rule of the church by the bishops, quote, root and branch through mass petitions and mass demonstrations at parliament. The church and state were heavily intertwined. The king was the head of both. 
abolition of the church hierarchy would mean the fall of the monarchy. Puritanism was thus a revolutionary movement against feudalism. And it was only the support of the London Puritan movement that made it possible for Parliament to defeat the king's drive for absolute power. There was thus a de facto political alliance between a majority of gentry in the House of Commons and the free trading Atlantic merchants in London who were leading the Puritan movement, which gave the gentry confidence that they could control the middling class movement. After the Civil War, this alliance of landowners and rich merchants would betray the middling people's interests, undermining the revolution. The skew introduced into the revolutionary process by the participation of the politically moderate gentry was responsible for the short-term failure that restored the monarchy in 1660 and the hybrid outcome of monarchy and nobility sharing power with the bourgeoisie after the revolution in 1688. Following up on that, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you, you've already talked about, you know, quite a bit about the class divisions, but I was wondering if you could just uh, discuss a little bit more about your analysis. And like you said, you're sort of motivating, your main motivation for writing this was to counter uh, the sort of the standard conservative narrative. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that narrative uh, and uh, your criticisms of it and what you introduce. Sure. Uh, so let's see. Well, it was the English historian Christopher Hill who had been singularly responsible for establishing the Marxist understanding of the English Revolution as a social rather than a religious or Puritan revolution in the mid-20th century. But there was a weakness in Hill's conception that left an opening for the right-wing revisionist historians. Hill had attributed leadership of the revolution to what he called the progressive gentry, a group he amalgamated with the capitalist bourgeoisie. And the gentry in the House of Commons uh, did play a progressive political role. But as we have seen, they were moderate reformers, not conscious revolutionaries. In order to attack Hill and Marxism, the revisionists strictly limited what evidence was considered legitimate and concentrated doing on the doings of the king and his court, or as one of them put it, the people who count. They maintained that England was a tranquil and consensual society with no major political disagreements and no long-term economic pauses of social change. It was not enough for them to question Marxist interpretation. They attempted to malign its entire method and ideology, leading them absurdly to deny that any revolution had ever taken place. Any form of analysis was denounced as hindsight, imposing modern concepts on history, and they fostered some of the most far-fetched and distorted arguments. It was claimed, for example, that what occurred in the 1640s could not be called a revolution because at that time, the word was only applied to astronomy, not politics. Such claims were simply the product of anti-communist ideology. At bottom, the real issue in question was, how do we understand history? For the revisionists, history is composed of events that happen to happen. According to them, they occur accidentally, by chance, or as unintended consequences. At most, they are the result of decisions made at the highest levels of society. The revisionist rejection on principle of history as an ongoing process 
and with a trajectory meant they were unable to explain how or why societies change over time. For them, history is simultaneously static and anarchic. In stark contrast to this, Marx's class analysis is based on the principle that people are firstly impacted by their economic position in society. The most basic material needs of human beings are for food, clothing, and shelter. It is the process of production organized in the given economic system that sets the contours of any society. Modern science has produced many wonders, but those advances are also the limitations that modern society operates within. Social classes are defined by their role in production. It is the opposing material interests of different classes that cause conflicts between them for the wealth of society. And this accounts for the push and pull, conflict and resolution that drives history forward or sometimes back. The central question in any society is labor. Who does or doesn't labor? What goods are produced? Under what conditions? And for whose benefit? These are the necessary prerequisite questions for analyzing historical episodes. The technical level of a given society fundamentally conditions all other aspects, political, cultural, ideological. Ancient Egyptians and Incas were able to build pyramids, but not the Empire State Building in New York. Not because they didn't think of it, but because they did not possess the technology necessary to do it. Contrary to many mainstream academics, this is not what they call economic determinism. Marx and Engels' view was historical materialism, also known as dialectical materialism, which requires that society be seen as a totality with the integration of both economic and non-economic factors. We could hardly speak of social movements or revolution if it were not for the subjective factor in history. When societal contradictions become intolerable, intolerable and revolutions occur, the social class that rules society and monopolizes its wealth is overthrown by a lower class, permanently realigning the economic and legal systems to suit their own requirements. Such turnovers are progressive when they facilitate a qualitatively higher level of economic production and corresponding expansion of political freedom. The English Revolution, which began in London, is one example of this. It abolished the feudal constraints and interference in the capitalist economy, which eventually made possible the Industrial Revolution. Is there uh, any other aspect of Marxist analysis uh, that you think is either important for understanding this particular event uh, or is something that you think people should consider when looking at other historical events as well? Hmm. Well, let me say this. Um, as I just said, social revolutions bring about greater personal freedom and participation in society. What we today call democratic rights arose out of the actual experience of the revolution in London. The Second Amendment to the Constitution, for example, originates from the actions of the armed people occupying the streets of London in defense of Parliament against the King. Hamilton and Madison both argued in the Federalist Papers that militias, which they defined as citizens with arms, were the guarantee of the people's liberties. 
Throughout the 1640s in England, there were many pamphlets and debates over such issues as the sovereignty of the people, the relationship between church and state, whether the people had a right to overthrow their rulers. And some of these democratic ideas were codified in the English Bill of Rights in 1689 and the Bill of Rights to the US Constitution 100 years later. The American experience, of course, in turn influenced the French revolutionaries of 1789. In England, participation of aristocrats in the capitalist money economy led to retention of the monarchy after the revolution in 1688, a ludicrous spectacle that still exists today. The role these feudal leftovers play is no less reactionary now than it was then. The only difference is today they now help to prop up the decaying capitalist system. During the First World War between, the imperial, between imperialist powers, Rosa Luxemburg, following Marx and Engels, wrote that the alternatives for humanity were socialism or barbarism. It seems clear today that we are moving at a pretty good clip towards barbarism. Whatever forms that may take, a new world war, fascism, economic or environmental collapse, the root cause is the capitalist profit system, which ceased being progressive more than 100 years ago. So, I hope, you know, when um, you ask about aspects of Marxism, it's always important that we look at the specific historical experience and understand how that changes and how that stays the same um, over time. And the English Revolution and the origins of capitalism uh, have a lot to teach us. My book is an attempt to draw the appropriate historical lessons. Thank you so much, Michael, for being a guest on the New Books Network. Uh, the book is London Revolution, 1640 to 1643, Class Struggles in 17th Century England from, I believe, the, the Mad Duck Coalition, if I've got that correct. Uh, correct. And people should also check out the Mad Duck Coalition because it's a pretty, uh, pretty cool publisher that I had recently learned about, and they're doing some really interesting work. So, Michael, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you for having me.